Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. It's been a few weeks now since we produced our last edition and I'm delighted that we have with us today Hilaire Diallo. He's the Senior Vice President for Sustainability and Environmental Management at Barrick Gold. Barrick Gold, as many of you will know, is one of the biggest mining companies in the world, listed in Canada, I think, but maybe dual listed. Hilaire may be able to confirm that for us in a moment. Hilaire spent getting on to 20 years in the mining industry. He has occupied the role of environmental and community development manager, first at Rangold Resources, and then when Rand Gold merged with Barrick, he assumed the portfolio there. He was for a short period country manager in Tanzania also for the group. And he's now based, I think I'm right in saying, Hilaire, you're now based in Mali, um, yeah. but you oversee the Africa and Middle East portfolio for uh, Barrick Gold, which comprises both gold assets, as one might imagine, but copper assets too. The portfolio extends from Tanzania to a gold mine in DRC, to the operations in Mali, where you are, to the Lamwana mine, copper in Zambia. And I think you've got a gold asset also in Cote d'Ivoire and some operations too in Egypt. So a big portfolio, a big footprint. I know that we've we've struggled to schedule a time to get you for this podcast, but I'm delighted that we finally have. The day has arrived and I have the pleasure of speaking to you. Good morning, Hilaire. Good morning, Marcus. So I'm going to start, if I may, by just asking you to introduce yourself, where you grew up, what studies you pursued, a little insight into your career, where you find yourself now, the position that you occupy at, at Barrick, and your responsibilities there, if I may. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for having me here. It's really a privilege and a pleasure for me to be here. I was born in Mali, and I spent the first part of my education in Burkina Faso. 15 years there, and then came back to Mali, spent my high schools after matric. The country selected the 10 best people, and they were sponsored by Rangold Resources to go to South Africa to complete the university studies. I was lucky to be part of that group, and we went to Pretoria, uh, where I studied environmental engineering, uh, geology. Uh, I completed my honors there before being employed by the same company, Rangol Resources, in his Mali Lulu mine, Lulu Gunkoto mines, where I started my career. After two, three years with Rangol uh, Resources, they again sponsored a master studies in the Netherlands, uh, where I completed a master in resource engineering at the Delft uh, University of Technology in the Netherlands. Really, that was a very good experience because I was also there part of the Erasmus program uh, where we would go in European countries, mining focus uh, universities. So I, I was delighted to meet a community of Europeans, youngsters my age. And then uh, 
I completed that in two years, spent one year in Europe, and then the other year I spent it while back on my job. So in a nutshell, Marcus, that's my career. And obviously, as you've rightfully said, I started as an environmental officer and mine manager in environment and then grew up into the corporate role today. So you've spent an entire career in the mining industry um, yes. and with the, the same group, which is a novelty, I, I might imagine, but perhaps not so rare. I would say the company has been good to me because since matric, I've been into the company care. And really every day, I'm delighted to keep working with the same company with the uh, the type of leadership we have and the openness and the learning and the experience, I think every day is a new thing. You know? So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping going. I don't intend to change that. Quite interesting. I wonder, was there a cabal of you that started at the same time after matric and have stayed with the group or are you unique in, in that respect as it relates to the year in which you graduated and joined? Well, we were 10 people, some sort, and some during the studies obviously decided to do other things before they even started the group. Today, we are two people that follow the same program with the group because the other part of the bursary was Anglo Gold. So it was Run Gold and Anglo Gold sponsoring. And I started straight after with Run Gold and the rest are with Anglo Gold. And they're still there. You know? So it's a, it was a personal choice. How interesting. We've touched on this subject in a conversation I think we had a couple of years ago about leadership in the sector in Africa. The industry would benefit from more African leadership, more examples of Africans at the helm of business and the industry on the continent. There's been definite progress over the last years with many more examples today of African leaders. Men, yes, but women too occupying senior roles in the industry. But my observation is that we still have a long way to go. Would you agree with that? You're a product of being taken after matric and groomed for leadership role within what was Rangold, now Barrick. You've given examples of a, a few others who graduated with you. I wonder what your observation is about how the industry has, has developed and deliberately groomed African talent for leadership roles, how that's working, whether it's delivering the sort of desired results and what more you think could be done, not specifically from the vantage point of your employer, but from the industry more generally. I'll just say my observation is that in particular, young African talent that I'm exposed to is interested more in financial services and, and the tech industries than they are gravitating towards heavy industry and mining. So there's a challenge, I think, to get the best African talent into the industry and occupying senior roles. I'll say that uh, the, the industry has done very poorly in that aspect. And I don't think there is a resistance from young Africans to go into mining. There is somehow a lack of opportunities for this young African talent. If you look at the mining industry, I mean, it's recently there is a big push to have locals employed in mining position. But in the past, you know, it was an industry uh, reserved to you know, mining mercenaries, you know, people that contract mining. And uh, the locals, the host country national didn't have an opportunity. It makes sense for a local young talent to go into mining because it's the highest paying job in the country. So I wouldn't say that people don't really want to go in mining. They just weren't given the opportunity. And you see, from my employer perspective, 
he started this young talent employment, let's say 20 years ago. At that time, it wasn't the same in other companies. And today, in the management or in the executive role, you've got so many people in that role from Africa. And we can see the result because there is real partnership with these country governments and our company. And that's the role we play. But it's not a quick, it's not a quick game. You know, it, it has to go through processes. Now we see companies trying rushing to hire uh, locals who don't necessarily share the DNA of that company or the vision of that company. And it's not working, you know, and it's not the same efficiency and it's not the same passion as if you had started 20 years ago. Well, thank you for that observation. You referenced there the importance or perhaps just the the fact of the partnership that exists between you and, and host country governments. I want to touch on that, if I may, because I think it's central to the industry's value proposition on the African continent specifically. As you say, most of the assets that you manage and develop are co-owned with, with host governments. National governments are joint owners of these assets. And yet, we know that there's a lot of friction that exists in that relationship. You just referenced real partnerships. I wonder if you could give us a perspective on your observation. I've categorized friction on one hand. You've referred to real partnerships on the other hand. Perhaps take us a little bit through that spectrum of relationships and how you view that in your role at Barrick. You mentioned that you were in Tanzania for two or three years, I think, as the country manager. That was just after a very well-publicized tension between Barrick and the administration there, John Magafuli's administration. So you've been exposed really to the, the really rough side of a relationship. And I know that in other jurisdictions, and I'm assuming now in Tanzania, you, you do have strong relationships and those relationships are delivering real value, not just for, for your business, but for the communities and for the national economy. Just give us a little bit of a perspective on the importance of that relationship with host country governments and how you manage it. I think the, the frictions or the accusations, there is different perspective to it. You know, you can look at it at the with the lens of an investor, you can look at it with the lens of the mining operator, the mining company itself, or you can look at it with the lens of the society, you know, the community. And where there is crisis or there is dispute, you'll see that there is a high level of uneducated population and also a high level of populist politics. Because for a mine to be constructed, there is a contract. You know, there is a convention between the mining company and the government. And most of the time, the rules are clear from the beginning. You know, it's clear to the government what shares you're going to get. And it's clear the assurance is given to the investor that if you put X amount of USD and this is X amount of money you get, you know, because that's how the game is played. And now in the middle of the game, as a mining company, you run the risk of government change, of populist politics, of people coming in and the youth growing and people demanding more. I must say, in the mining industry, that's something we expect. I mean, people are changing. There is more information. There is social media. There is there's a lot of things happening, a lot of changes happening in the world, and it's happening also in the communities in our host countries. But say that, and, and the claim some of the people make in terms of having little benefits, 
would say that's speculation, you know, that's speculation because that little benefits, I don't know what's the measure of that, you know, it, it could be little, I don't know, in terms of money, but the positive of impact of mining cannot be underrated or underestimated because a mine, what it does, not only create jobs, it brings a lot of knowledge into the country. It brings a lot of direct investment into the country. It creates massive business opportunities in the country. And most of the time, government in power, or the party in power, would really bet on the social benefits to bring in the mining company in the country. So the, the, the changes or the complaint we're seeing happening and the push to review the mining laws, I think some of the time are unjustified. Thank you for sharing those insights. I'm going to challenge you, if I may. The contribution of the, of the mining industry to African economies is significant, as you point out. You know, the industry generates billions of dollars of revenues for African exchequers, millions of jobs and and millions of indirect um, employment created as well. There are many examples of community development initiatives. I know within your Barrick portfolio, you have some outstanding initiatives in, in schools, in biodiversity conservation, in water and sanitation, impacting tens of thousands of people and communities and positively uplifting communities in the environments of your operations. But, and here's the challenge, you know, the scale of the industry is so big and its economic contribution so significant that it has the potential to go well beyond this in some people's views and to be generally transformative, not just for the communities in the environments of your, of your projects, but for whole economies and societies. And yet there are very, very few examples of where the industry has genuinely contributed to transformation on the scale that you know, we've often talked about in terms of its potential. I have a theory of my own, and that is that the industry is, is ghettoized to some degree. It exists in, in isolation from the broader economy. It's been too much of an extractive industry, creating infrastructure to evacuate ore, and quite a lot of that ore, unprocessed ore. And too little effort is placed on thinking through what is required to integrate the industry into the broader national economy, and in some cases, the regional economy, in ways that would make it really embedded into the society at large and would help create value chain linkages that are much broader than the direct um, economic contribution than you can supply alone as an industry. I'm going to, to touch a little bit on, on the announcement that was made just earlier this year in between the Zambian president and, and president in Congo, where they agreed to establish a partnership for cooperation in battery value chain. On the face of it, it looks like a really progressive thinking and seems to be backed by a political commitment to, I haven't studied it and I don't know what the enabling policies are, but it's the example of a sort of collaboration, in this case, between two governments and industry and measures that are being put in place to make sure that value is added to raw materials and to integrate the mining industry into sort of reimagining the region's industrialization. And I come back to the point I made earlier, and that is governments are joint owners of these assets with you. The opportunity to work with them collaboratively to think through how to reimagine industrial policy 
may not be part of your contract, but it is a part of creating sustainable economic development and making these economies future fit and your industry also. And I wonder to what degree you feel able to have these conversations or you're thinking about sort of developments in the context of your own operations in this way. Marcus, I think when we come in a, in a country, our responsibility, what we agree with the government is to optimally mine the resource. We have to apply our best knowledge so that every ounce of gold or every pound of the copper is mined, is extracted efficiently without polluting the environment so that we generate the best value for all the stakeholders. Mm. And when we talk stakeholders, it's the shareholders that risk their capital. It's the host government because we, in our philosophy, the minerals belong to the country. It's a national asset. And we are being entrusted to come to optimally mine it. So it, that's our responsibility, our first responsibility. And we have to make sure we employ people locally. We train people and upskill upskill them, and then they can go into the broader economy, into the, into the country. The point you raise in terms of us having a contract, not just the financial aspect of things, but we need to also be mindful of that integration into the, into the country, into the wider economy. That's a discussion we're having, and you are right. If you look at the performance of the industry over the past uh, decade or, or so, few decades, the industry hasn't been doing great. You know, the blame can be shared. You know, there is the government responsibility because the capacity, institutional capacity of the, of the government also varies. And then you also have the miners that, that focus solely on mining that go and sometimes it's not done efficiently. But from my experience and in the, in the company I'm operating, the policy has always been clear, actually. We have always been open. We are doing our best to integrate into the a national economy. And I can say that our limiting factors is how capable is these public institutions or even the private sector to tap into the opportunities that we created. The fact that I am here today as the head of uh, sustainability for African Middle East, I'm an African and there is no barriers between me and an African government when we talk honestly, how do we integrate all these opportunities into the economy? I think our government have to do a bit more in upskilling people, and that is investing in universities. Marcus, I'm not a professional educator. All I can do is, is translate the vision of the CEO that want to see Africa develop and put in some fund in place. And I take that fund and I go and see the university or the government and say, look, we can invest this and that into this sector, but the expertise and the willingness to transform that sector, be it educational, health, food security, that responsibility, I'm afraid, is the government responsibility. And we, we have to talk frankly, and that has been the biggest limiting factors in this whole integrations of mining and the host country economy. And don't quote me wrong, some mining companies are not doing great in that openness and willingness to integrate into the economy. But my experience is that we are open, 
and we have tried. We've got success stories where we're doing great in terms of integrating uh, with the government. You've quoted the Tanzanian experience. I think we are the first company that uh, led some shares to the government before us. None of the company operating there as their own 100% of the assets. And then with our partnership, you know, we've engineered it so that we have a 50-50 benefit from the mining operations we have. So that's, again, highlight the willingness, you know, because if you have a CEO that wants to do things, the rest is the capacity of the team you delegate as your sustainability team or as your economic team, their willingness, their professionalism, and also, on the other side, it depends on the capacity, institutional capacity of the receiving hands. Thank you, Hilaire. You talked about the capacity within African governments and I think more broadly within African industry. I wonder if you're seeing African governments be genuinely more awake to the opportunity that exists today, given the global energy crisis given the imperative that there is to decarbonize the global economy and the critical role of minerals and metals and other natural resources in that decarbonization effort. I wonder if you see whether African governments are genuinely more awake to the opportunities to become part of these global value chains and to ensure that Africa's natural resources are placed to these new uses, new forms, rather than the sort of the historic position where African nations would, by and large, just supply exports of unrefined raw materials to the global markets. Are there indications now that you see that African nations are genuinely awake to the opportunities that this global energy crisis and the decarbonisation imperative affords for African nations. I'm thinking, I was reading an article just yesterday by Carlos Lopez, who you'll know. It was in New African magazine, and he said specifically, he said, African nations have a fundamental role to play in the solutions of tomorrow. That suggests, and he does more than suggest in his interview, that actually African nations are critical to the world's efforts to decarbonize and and digitize. And I wonder how you see that playing out in your markets and in particular in your conversations with governments in Africa. Yeah, Africa has a big role to play. And I think they've been involved in all the debates, you know, the Paris Agreement. I'm aware of African delegation going there, being part of the debate since the beginning, you know, and most of the 55 states in Africa have submitted the nationally committed contributions to that agreement, you know, and they all have, yeah, and they all have the the action plan, national action plan. And uh, I think they're aware of the opportunity that this whole climate change discussion is offering. But I think they're also very aware of limited capacity in terms of tapping in all these opportunities offered by them. One, I also was listening to the Ivorian president, you know, when the European Union says they will not buy cocoa from Ivory Coast if the product doesn't demonstrate a certain environmental standard. The reaction of the president, he was really pissed off, you know, and he didn't appreciate that comment. He said, well, if they don't want to buy, we'll go and sell to other markets because... 
the whole climate change issue we're facing today has been caused by the developed nations and the impact, the collateral. We, Africa, is now experiencing the collateral damage from years and years of industrialization, and that's not surely from Africa. And by that speech, I've seen that from many presidents and a lot of officials from the government. And in that, they expect more investment and more honesty from the developed countries, you know, in terms of investing in that decarbonization or this climate change efforts and also bringing in technologies into Africa. And that's the major gap all the African countries have identified. You know, finance, there's very little finance coming in and uh, there's very little technologies. But from the day-to-day operations, I see there is a big change in the private sector because I see a lot of energy renewable companies, Africans, you know, there is a lot of push to have solar panels and and the big drives of our industry, mining companies to install renewables in energy productions is also being seen really as an opportunity from these young entrepreneurs and all this solar panel initiative. And the fact that the battery cost is going down and then there will be more mining companies willing to change, switch from fossil fuel to renewables. And that's the reality. In our company now, we run 80% of our energy from hydro in the Congo. And uh, we have 20 meg uh, solar installed in Mali, and then we're increasing that to 60. And that's about 85% of the mine demand in uh, in energy. So there is, I think there is a a realization of the opportunity. And I believe there is even committees put in place by the African Union and also uh, nationalists to tap into those different opportunities. But if you look at a country like Nigeria they, or Kenya, they're benefiting more energy transition discussion, but you don't find a lot of extractive industry like you know gold mining, copper, and whatever. Although there is petrol in, in Nigeria, which is not well seen in the eye, but anyway, they, they're still investing a lot in renewables there as well. I don't know if you had the opportunity to review the recently launched new US-Africa strategy. It was launched last month by the White House. And shortly afterwards, Secretary Blinken was in DRC and and visited a couple of other countries, I think Rwanda and I forget the other shortly after that. But there was one point I noted in that. It's a relatively short document in which the US commits to, well, it's an acknowledgement that African countries must determine how best to meet their specific energy needs. It represented, to my mind, a very stark change of tone emerged from Glasgow last year at the COP there. And I'm hoping it's the tone that will be taken by more and more of Africans' partners, bilateral and multilateral partners, as we approach the negotiations for COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, a recognition that African nations must determine their own energy mix, which is, as I say, different from what we were hearing at this time last year. Secretary Blinken also gave supporting evidence to this when in DRC he committed to helping the Congolese government in, in restoring biodiversity but recognising that the country wants to exploit its fossil fuel reserves as well, a number of oil licences that are being tendered there. So I see a change in tone certainly there, which hopefully will be, well, I think has been welcomed amongst many African leaders. As we approach COP27, it'll take place in Sharm el-Sheikh in November. How does a a company like Barrick participate in that forum? 
What are you doing, and specifically you, within your role? Can you tell us a little bit about that? We haven't in the past participated as a, as a company, but we do have the government in our host countries that always go and we walk through them. So we, we always come in as a national, you know, if the Mali government is going and they do go every year, we sponsor them and also we give them climate reports in terms of what are we doing in Mali. And same goes in the DRC and same goes in another in another country. But we haven't really participated directly in the uh, I'm assuming the a number of your projects sort of contributors to the NDCs of these national Exactly. Countries. Exactly. So you'll see national host country government would even present our initiatives there as a mining company. You know, but we physically don't participate. We haven't so far participated. But I think it definitely is something that we could look into in future. But tell me, you've touched briefly on the transition you're making to renewable energy across your portfolio of projects in Africa, the use of hydro in DRC, what you're doing to expand solar in Mali, and I'm assuming across all of your footprints on the continent. I know also from previous conversations I've had with you, that you're, you're investing heavily in biodiversity conservation as well. I wonder if you could tell us more about your motivation for that and, and, and what that involves. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. I think one thing that the African government also are, are pushing uh, the world to realize is the vast opportunities that the forests offer in terms of offset opportunities. You know, because if you look at Africa, we've got you know, one of the best forests in the world and Africa intends to be recognized for that financially actually you know so we've realized that you know that's also a very underdeveloped areas in Africa the forest conservation biodiversity conservation when you are in Europe or America you people you ask people about Africa what comes in the mind usually apart from you know that image of a of a famine hungry boy it's usually lions and those forests and, you know, safaris and all of that. So that's mean Africa position in the world can be strengthened if we invest more in biodiversity, because that's how Africa also will attract the rest of the world to come to Africa. So we've realized that. And, and the fact that our minds also, when you open a pit or an underground, it's a land lost forever. You know, usually you don't backfill that area and you can't rehabilitate it to 100%. So that residual biodiversity impact, we've decided, and that was also led by the CEO initiative, is we've decided to invest in conservation areas in our host country. And that we've been doing it now for the past 15 years. We started with the Garamba National Park in the DRC. It's not very far from our Kibali mines. And we had started investing in that. And, and then we see the big benefit that is creating. And then we recently even signed a, an agreement with the African parks that is managing the park to reintroduce the white rhinos in that ecosystem. Because in Africa, that ecosystem, that habitat was the only place where you could find uh, white rhinos. But they've been extinct for a number of years now due to poaching and everything. So we've signed a 2 million contract, USD contract with them to bring in 50 white rhinos across from South Africa to that thing. So we've started in Congo. We are currently doing a, a big offset project in the in Lumwana, in the Eke Forest. 
that's also a forest around our mind that we saw being degraded by charcoal logging and all this community growing and this impact. So we've decided to launch a big conservation project and generate carbon credit out of that. In Mali also, as I've, you and I spoke before, is our FINA project. It's in the Bukul de Baula, it's a world heritage site that has almost been abandoned you know, by the forestry guys. No one is there and is being left to intensive logging. And it's, 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 a, it's quite a, a, a nice forest. It's got a, a huge history in the, in the cultural hunting, you know, this local hunter's history in the country. It's forest holds a magnificent heritage in the country story. So we've decided to spend money into that conservation area not only because it's the World Heritage Site, but it's represent quite a valuable asset to the country. So we've now trained rangers and they're being technically supported by the African parks. The government has agreed to give a piece in that big forest where we would conserve and demonstrate that we can reverse the trends of degradation. And once that is established, I think we would extend our footprint to cover the whole Buckle de Baule and save the whole footprint because it's a it's a, it's, it's a one million hectare forest so it's it's quite big oh, and huge. yeah it's, it's it's a huge place and that's something we, we would like to do in the next five years. I'm putting on the spot here and but when you combine these areas of land this acreage what does it total roughly? I mean you mentioned a million in in Mali a million hectares there. For the Heke forest, is about half a million, 600,000 hectares okay. in Zambia. And then the, the Garamba National Park in, in the DRC, it's almost the same. It's around half a million hectares, if my memory wow. is right. Yeah. And you've spoken about the sort of the value to cultural heritage preservation, to wildlife protection with the rhinos in DRC. You've touched on carbon credits, but I wonder, this is a big expanse of land. At what stage are you at in terms of being able to monetize this biodiversity and these ecosystem services that these forests, the joining land, provide? Initially, we, we were doing it before this whole discussion about carbon credit. We were doing it because it's the right thing to do, you know, because we have yeah. a, a passion of giving back and investing. And we, we really, we driven by seeing the change we make in our society, in our host countries, in our host community. We didn't link it necessarily to any uh, carbon credit. Or, but lately, in the past two years, from Rangol, then we merged with Barrick, we, we're now looking at how do we account for the change we're bringing about to this natural habitat. And carbon crediting is one of the things that uh, we decided to try at Luana. And we are at the beginning stage. We just completed the feasibility. So it's eligibility, it's feasibility. Now we're implementing this conservation project. We expect in the next four years to start being able to monetize it in terms of credit. How exciting. exciting. Very exciting indeed, yeah. Can I touch briefly before we end on Mali? It's a country that my team and I observe close interest. It's a country that's faced with significant challenges at the moment. I know that ECOWAS sanctions were, were lifted in July, which must be welcome to industry operating there. But that is at a very precarious state of development, and the international community is in the process of dialogue 
with the government there around maintenance of security support or withdrawal. A number of countries have withdrawn troops. Um, how does it feel operating a big mine in, in Mali in the current environment? Honestly, nothing has, has changed. Obviously, we're monitoring the situation. But from the beginning, I think this whole thing started in 2012. Up to now, we've been operating fine. We haven't had any incidents uh, related to what's happening there. Of course, when we had that ECOWAS sanctions, it was a bit difficult to, to bring in goods. So we had to change to, to Guinea because now the Dakar and Ivory Coast were closed and then we had to shift to to Guinea, but that went fine. We actually saved cost because it's a it's a much shorter distance to bring in the product. I think the Ukrainian conflict is impacting us more than currently what's happening in, in Mali or in the region. Oh, that's interesting to hear. I traditionally ask our guests to tell us what they're reading or, or what they're listening to and to give us a little insight into that. So are you reading anything at the moment? And what are you listening to, either podcasts or, or music, Hilaire? I'm now listening mostly to the ancient religion. Lately, the past week, I was reading a lot about Jewish culture. I've done Hinduism. I've done Muslim. Lately, I was listening more about the Jewish culture, how it started and the principle, the practices, uh, religious practices. Yeah, so currently, that's what I'm I'm, I'm busy with. In terms of reading, I'm I'm reading... uh, book of Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, reading that at the moment, but not any podcast, unfortunately. No, no time for podcasts, but I wonder what's interested you to pursue this interfaith exploration or reading that you're doing? I think it's, I was being over, overwhelmed by what's wrong and right, and I've decided to go to the source myself and trying to make up my mind. You know, we live in a in a world now with a lot of Mali, the history of Mali, you You've heard there's yes, yes. a couple of incidents with terrorists and people claiming to be following a religion. So that's really pushed me to start looking and making my own mind because it's quite overwhelming for me. Yeah. Oh, well, it's great to hear people like you exploring and exploring the other faiths. If only more of us did that, looked at the prism through which others pursue their faith and see the world. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Hilaire. Thank you for your time. We started off with your reference to the legacy of mining mercenaries, and we ended up talking about the contribution that progressive modern miners such as yourself are making to supporting African nations in becoming natural capital superpowers in the role that you're playing in helping develop critical mineral assets and metals assets, but also in preserving biodiversity. Thank you for that. It's been a a bit of a tour de force. We've discussed many different subjects, and I'm really grateful to you for being open and amenable to sharing your insights with us and, and our audience. Thank you, Marcus, for having me here. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.